Hello, Traveler, and welcome back to the Quincy's Tavern Podcast. Happy Monday. My name is Quincy, and I'll be your tavern keeper and your storyteller for this evening. Today, we are going continuing through our tale, our read-through of the classic tale of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. This will be part four in our series, and this covers chapters 16 through 21. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. If wherever you're listening, thank you. Whether it's on Amazon Music or Spotify, YouTube, uh, wherever it is, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. We really appreciate your support. It means the world. Thank you so much for just choosing to hang out with us uh, wherever you are. Um, if you'd like to give uh, feedback or questions or suggestions, uh, please email us, us at Quincy's Tavern Podcast at gmail.com. But Without further ado, let's just jump into to tonight's story time uh, with Treasure Island. Part 4, The Stockade. Chapter 16. Narrative continued by the Doctor. How the ship was abandoned. It was about half past one, three bells in the sea phrase, that the two boats went ashore from the Hispaniola. The captain, the squire, and I were talking matters over in the cabin, had there been a breath of wind, we should have fallen on the six mutineers who were left aboard with us, slipped our cable, and went away to sea. But the wind was wanting, and to complete our helplessness, down came Hunter with the news that Jim Hawkins had slipped into a boat and was gone ashore with the rest. It never occurred to us to doubt Jim Hawkins, but we were alarmed for his safety. With the men in the temper they were in, it seemed an even chance if we should even see the lad again. We ran on deck. The pitch was bubbling in the seams. The nasty stench of the place burnt turned me sick. If ever a man smelt fever and dysentery, it was in that abominable anchorage. The six scoundrels were sitting grumbling under a sail in the forecastle. Ashore, we could see the gigs made fast, and a man sitting in each, heard by where the river runs in. One of them was whistling Lily Bulero. Waiting was a strain and it was decided that Hunter and I should go ashore with the jolly boat in quest of information. The gigs had leaned to their right, but Hunter and I pulled straight in, in the direction of the stockade upon the chart. The two were left guarding, their boats seemed in a bustle at our appearance. Luli Bellero stepped off, and I could see the pair discussing what they ought to do. Had they gone and told Silver, all might have turned out differently, but they had their orders, I suppose, and decided to sit quietly where they were and hark back again to Luli Bellero. There was a slight bend in the coast, and I steered so as to put it between us even before we landed. We had thus lost sight of the gigs. I jumped out and came as near, running as I durst, with a big silk handkerchief under my hat for coolness sake, and a brace of pistols ready primed for safety. I had not gone a hundred yards when I came to the stockade. This was how it was. A spring of clear water rose almost at the top of the knoll. Well, on the knoll, and enclosing the spring, they had clapped a stout log house, fit to hold two score people on a pinch, and loopholed for musketry on every side. All round this they had cleared a wide space, and then the thing was completed by paling six feet high, without door or opening, too strong to pull down without time and labor, and too open to shelter the besiegers. The people in the log house had them in every way. They stood quiet in shelter and shot the others like partridges. All they wanted was a good watch and food, for, short of a complete surprise, they might have held the place against a regiment. What particularly took my fancy was the spring, for though we had a good enough place of it in the cabin of the Hispaniola, with plenty of arms and ammunition, and things to eat and excellent wines, there had been one thing overlooked. We had no water. 
I was thinking this over when there came ringing over the island the cry of a man at the point of death. I was not new to violent death. I was has served His Royal Highness the Duke of Cumberland and got a wound myself in Fontenay. But I know when my pulse went dot and carry one. Jim Hawkins is gone was my first thought. It is something to have been an old soldier, but more still to have been a doctor. There is no time to dilly-dally in our work, and so now I made up my mind instantly, and with no time lost returned to the shore and jumped on board the jolly boat. By good fortune, Hunter pulled out a good oar. We made the water fly, and the boat was soon, al soon alongside, and I aboard the schooner. I found them all shaken, as was natural. The squire was sitting down as white as a sheet, thinking of the harm he had led us to, the good soul. And one of the six far castle hands was a little better. Was little better. There's a man, said Captain Smollett, nodding towards him, new to, new to this work. He came nigh hand fainting, doctor, when he heard the cry. Another touch of the rudder and that man would join us. I told my plan to the captain, and between us we settled on the details of its accomplishment. We put old Redruth in the gallery between the cabin and the forecastle, with three or four loaded muskets and a mattress for protection. Hunter brought the boat round under the stern port, and Joyce and I set working loading her under with powder tins, muskets, bags of biscuits, kegs of pork, a casket of cognac, and invaluable and my invaluable medicine chest. In the meantime, the squire and captain stayed on the deck, and the latter hailed the coxswain, who was the, in who was the principal man on board. Mr. Hans, he said, you are two of us with a brace of pistols each. If any one of you six make a signal of any description, that man's dead. They were a good deal taken aback, and after a little consultation, one and all tumbled down the fore com companion, thinking, no doubt, to take us in the, on the rear. But when they saw Redruth waiting for them in the sparred gallery, they went about the ship once, and a head popped out again on dock. Down, dog! cried the captain, and the head popped back again, and we heard no more for the time of these very six faint-hearted seamen. By this time, tumbling things in as they came, we had the jolly boat loaded as much as we dared. Joyce and I got out through the stern port, and we made for shore again, as fast as oars could take us. This second trip fairly aroused the watchers by the shore. Lily Bellaro was dropped again, and just before we lost sight of them behind the little point, and one of them whipped ashore and disappeared. I had half a mind to change my plan and destroy their boats, but I feared that Silver and the others might be close at hand, and all might very well be lost by trying for too much. We had soon touched land in the same place as before, and set to provision the blockhouse. All three made the first journey, heavily laden, and tossed our stores over the palisade. Then, leaving Joyce to guard them, one man to be sure, but with half a dozen muskets, Hunter and I returned to the jolly boat, and loaded ourselves once more. So we proceeded without pausing to take breath till the whole cargo was bestowed, when the two servants took up their position in the blockhouse, and I, with all my power, sculled back to the Hispaniola. That we should have risked a second bout load seemed more daring than it really was. They had the advantage of numbers, of course, but we had the advantage of arms. Not one of the men ashore had a musket, and before they could get within a range for pistol shooting, we flattered ourselves we should be able to give a good account of a half a dozen at least. The squire was waiting for me at the stern window, all his faintness gone from him. He caught the painter and made it fast, and we fell to loading the boat for our very lives. Pork, powder, and biscuit was the cargo, with only a musket and a cutlass apiece for squire and me and Redruth and the captain. The rest of the arms and powder we dropped overboard in two fathoms and a half of water, so that we could see the bright steel shining far below us in the sun on the clean, sandy bottom. By this time the tide was beginning to ebb, and the ship was swinging around her to anchor. 
voices were heard faintly hallowing in the direction of the two gigs. And though this reassured us for Joyce and Hunter, who were well in the eastward, it warned our party to be off. Redruth retreated from his place in the gallery and dropped into the boat, which we then brought round to the ship's counter, to be handier for Captain Smollett. Now, men, said he, do you hear me? There was no answer from the forecastle. It's to you, Abraham Gray. It's to you I'm speaking. Still no reply. Gray, resumed Mr. Smollett a little louder. I'm leaving the ship, and I order you to follow your captain. I know you're a good man at bottom, and I dare not one of the lot of you is as bad as he makes out. I have my watch here in my hand. I give you thirty seconds to join me. There was a pause. Come, my fine fellow, continued the captain. Don't hang long so in stays. I'm risking my life and the lives of these good gentlemen every second. There was a sudden scuffle, a sound of blows, and outburst Abraham Gray with a knife cut on the side of his cheek and came running to the captain like a dog to the whistle. I'm with you, sir, said it, he said. In the next moment, he and the captain had dropped aboard of us and we had shoved off and given way. We were clear out of the ship, but not yet ashore in our stockade. Chapter 17 Narrative continued by the doctor. The Jolly Boat's last trip. This fifth trip was quite different from any of the others. In the first place, the little gallipot of the boat that we were in was gravely overloaded. Five grown men, and three of them, Trelawney, Redruth, and the captain, over six feet high, was already more than she was meant to carry. And to that, the powder, pork, and bread bags, the gunwale was limping astern. Several times we shipped a little water, and my breeches and the tails of my coats were all soaking wet before we had gone a hundred yards. The captain made us trim the boat, and we got her to lie a little more evenly. All the same, we were afraid to breathe. In the second place, the ebb was now making a strong rippling current running westward through the basin, and then southward and seaward down the straits by which we had entered in the morning. Even the ripples were a danger to our overloaded craft, but the worst of it was that we were swept out of our true course and away from our proper landing place behind the point. If we let the current have its way, we should come ashore beside the gig where the pirates might appear at any moment. "'I cannot keep her head up for the stockade, sir,' said I to the captain. I was steering while he and Redruth, two freshmen, were at the oars. "'The tide keeps washing her down. Can you pull a little stronger?' "'Not without swamping the boat,' said he. "'You must bear up, sir, if you please. Bear up until you see where you're gaining.' I tried, and found by experiment that the tide kept sweeping us westward until I had laid her head due east, or just about right angles to the way we ought to go. "'We'll never get ashore at this rate,' said I. "'If it's the only course that we can lie, sir, we must even lie it,' returned the captain. "'We must keep upstream. You see, sir,' he went on, "'if once we drop to leeward of the, of the landing place, it's hard to say where we should get ashore. Beside the chance of being boarded by the gigs, whereas the way we go the current must be slackened, and then we can dock back along the shore. The current's less already, sir, said the man Gray, who was sitting on the foresheets. You can ease her off a bit. Thank you, my man, I said, quite as if nothing had happened, for we all had quietly made up a mind to treat him like one of ourselves. Suddenly the captain spoke up again, and I thought his voice had changed a little. The gun, he said. I thought of that, I said, and I made sure he was thinking of a bombardment from the fort. They could never get the gun ashore, and if they did, they could never haul it through the woods. Look astern, doctor, replied the captain. We had entirely forgotten the long nine, and there, to our horror, were the five rogues busy about her, getting off her jacket as they called the stout tarpaulin cover under which she was sailed. 
Not only that, but it flashed into my mind at the same moment that the round shot and the powder for the gun had been left behind, and a stroke with an axe would have put it all into the possessions of the evil ones aboard. Israel was Flint's gunner, said Gray coarsely. At any risk, we put the boat's head direct for the landing place. By this time, we had got so far out of the run of the current that we kept steerage away even at our necessarily gentle rate of rowing, and I could keep her steady for the goal. But the worst of it was that this course I now held, we had turned our broadside instead of our stern to the Hispaniola and offered a target like a barn door. I could hear as well as see the, that brandy-faced rascal, Israel Hands, plumping down a round shot on the deck. "'Who's the best shot?' asked the captain. "'Mr. Trelawney, out and away,' said I. "'Mr. Trelawney, will you please pick me off one of these men, sir? "'Hands, if possible,' said the captain. "'Trelawney was as cool as steel. "'He looked at the priming of his gun. "'Now,' cried the captain, "'easy with that gun, sir. "'You'll swamp the boat. "'All hands stand by to trim her when he aims.' "'The squire raised his gun. "'The rowing ceased, and we leaned over to the other side to keep the balance.' and all was so nicely contrived we did not ship a drop. They had the guns. By this time he slewed round upon the swivel, and Hans, who was at the muzzle with the ram, and was, in consequence, the most exposed. However, we had no luck, for just as Trelawney fired, down he stooped and the ball whistled over him, and it was the one of the other four who fell. The cry he gave was echoed, not only by his own companions on board, but by a great number of voices from the shore, and looking in that direction I saw the other pirates trooping out from among the trees and tumbling into their places on the boats. "'Here come the gigs, sir,' said I. "'Give way, then!' cried the captain. "'We mustn't mind if we swamp her now. "'If we can't get ashore, all's up.' "'Only one of the gigs been manned, sir,' I added. "'The crews of the other might likely be around the shore, "'but to cut us off.' "'They'll have a hot run, sir,' returned the captain. "'Jack ashore, you know. "'It's not them, I mind. "'It's the round shot. "'Cup and balls. "'My lady's maid wouldn't miss. "'Tell her, squire, when you see the match, "'we'll hold water.' In the meanwhile, we had been making headway at a good pace for a boat so overloaded, and we had shipped but little water in the process. We were now close in, thirty or forty strokes, and we should beach her, for the ebb had already disclosed a narrow belt of sand below the clustering trees. The gig was no longer to be feared. The little point had already concealed it from our eyes. The ebb tide, which had so cruelly delayed us, was now making reparation and delayed our assailants. The one source of danger was the gun. "'If I dust,' said the captain, "'I'd stop and pick off another man.' but it was plain that they meant nothing should delay their shot. They had never so much as looked at their fallen comrade, though he was not dead and I could see him ready to, trying to crawl away. Ready, cried the squire. Hold, cried the captain, and quick as an echo, and he and Redruth backed with a great heave that sent her stern bodily underwater. The report fell in at the same instant of time. This was the first time that Jim heard the sound of the squire's shot not having reached him. Where the ball passed, not one of us precisely knew but I fancy it must have been over our heads, and that the wind of it may have been contributed to our disaster. At any rate, the boat sank by the stern, quite gently in three feet of water, leaving the captain and myself facing each other on our feet. The other three took complete, complete headers and came up again, drenched and bubbling. So far, there was no great harm. No lives were lost, and we could wade ashore in safety. But there were all our shores, stores at the bottom, and to make things worse, only two guns out of the five remain in a state of service. Mine... I had snatched from my knees and held over my head by a sort of instinct. As for the captain, he had carried his over his shoulder by a bandolier, and like a wise man, lock uppermost. The other three had gone down in the boat. To add to our concern, we heard voices already drawing us near in the woods along the shore, and we had not only the danger of being cut off from the stockade in our half-crippled state, but to fear before us whether if Hunter and Joyce were attacked by half a dozen, they would have the sense to conduct to stand firm. 
Hunter was steady in that we knew. Joyce was a doubtful case. A pleasant, polite man for a valet, and to brush one's clothes, but not entirely fitted for a man of war. With all this on our mind, we waded ashore as fast as we could, leaving behind the poor jolly boat and the good half of our powder and provisions. Chapter 18 Narrative Continued by the Doctor End of the First Day's Fighting We made our best speed across the strip of wood that now divided us from the stockade, and at every step we took the voices of the buccaneers rang nearer. Soon we could hear their footfalls as they ran and the crashing of the branches as they breasted across a bit of thicket. I began to see we should have a brush for it in earnest and looked to my priming. Captain, said I, Trelawney is the dead shot. Give him your gun. His own is useless. They exchanged guns, and Trelawney, silent and cool as he had been since the beginning of the bustle, hung a moment in his head to see that all was fit for service. At the same time, observing Gray to be unarmed, I handed him my cutlass. It did all our hearts good to see him spit in his hand, knit his brows, and make the blade sing through the air. It was plain from every line of his body that our new hand was worth his salt. Forty paces farther, we came to the edge of the wood and saw the stockade in front of us. The st we struck the enclosure about the middle of the south side, and almost at the same time, seven mutineers, Joe Banderson, the boatswain in their head, appeared in full cry at the southwestern corner. They paused as if taken aback, and before they recovered, not only the squire and I, but Hunter and Joyce from the black house had time to fire. The four shots came in rather a scattering volley, but they did the business. One of the enemy actually fell, and the rest, without hesitation, turned and plunged into the trees. After reloading, we walked down the outside of the palisade to see the enemy fallen. He was stone dead, shot through the heart. We had began to rejoice over the good success, but when just at that moment a pistol cracked in the bush, a ball whistled close past my ear, and poor Tom Redruth stumbled and fell his length to the ground. Both the squire and I returned the shot, but as we had nothing to aim at, it is probable we only wasted powder. Then we reloaded and turned our attention to poor Tom. The captain and Gray were already examining him and saw with half an eye that all was over. I believe the readiness in our return volley had scattered the mutineers once more, for we were suffered without further molestation to get the poor old gamekeeper hoisted over the stockade and carried groaning and bleeding into the log house. Poor old fellow. He had not uttered one word of surprise, complaint, fear, or even acquiescence from the very beginning of our troubles till now, when we had laid him down in the log house to die. He had lain like a Trojan behind his mattress in the gallery. He had followed every order silently, doggedly, and well. He was the oldest of our party by a score of years, and now sullen, old, serviceable servant. It was he that was to die. The squire dropped down beside him on his knees and kissed his hand, crying like a child. "'Be I going, doctor?' he asked. "'Tom, my man,' I said. "'You're going home.' "'Wish I had a, had a lick at them with the gun first. He replied. Tom, said the squire, say you forgive me, won't you? Would that be respectable like? From me to you, squire, was the answer. Howsoever, so be it. Amen. <laughs> After a little while of silence, he said he thought somebody might read a prayer. It's the custom, sir, he said apologetically. And not long after, without another word, he passed away. In the meantime, the captain, whom I had observed to be wonderfully swollen to the chest and pockets, had turned out a great many, many various stores. The British colors, a Bible, a coil of stoutish rope, pen, ink, the log book, and pounds of tobacco. He had found a longish fir tree lying felled and cleared in the enclosure, and with the help of Hunter, he had set it up at the corner of the log house with the trunks crossed and made an angle. 
then climbing on the roof, he had with his own hand bent and run up the colors. This seemed mightily to relieve him. He re-entered the log house and set about counting up the stores, as if nothing else existed. But he had an eye on Tom's passage for all that. And as soon as all was over, came forward with another flag and reverently spread it on the body. "'Don't you take on, sir,' he said, shaking the squire's hand. "'All's well with him. No fear for a hand that's been shot down in his duty to captain and owner. It mayn't be good divinity, but it's a fact.' Then he pulled me aside. Dr. Livesey, he said, in how many weeks do you and Squire expect the consort? I told him it was a question not of weeks, but of months, that if we were not back by the end of August, Blandley was to send to find us, but neither sooner nor later. You can calculate for yourself, I said. Oh, yes, returned the captain, scratching his head. And making a large allowance, sir, for all the gifts of providence, I should say we were pretty close hauled. How do you mean? I asked. It's a pity, sir. We lost that second load. That's what I mean, replied the captain. As for the powder and shot, we'll do. But the rations are short. Very short. So short, Dr. Lively, that we're perhaps as well without an extra mouth. And he pointed to the dead body under the flag. Just then, with a roar and a whistle, a round shot passed high above the roof of the log house and plumped far beyond us in the wood. <laughs> cried the captain. Blaze away, you've little enough powder already, my lads. At the second trial, the aim was better, and the ball descended inside the stockade, scattering a cloud of sand but doing no further damage. Captain, said the squire, the house is quite invisible from the ship. It would be the flag they're aiming at. Would it not be wiser to take it in? Strike my colors, cried the captain. No, sir, not I. And as soon as he said the words, I think we all agreed with him, for it was not only a piece of stout, seamanly good feeling... It was good policy besides, and showed our enemies that we despised their cannonade. All through the evening, they kept thundering away. Ball after ball flew or fell short or kicked up the sand in the enclosure. But they had to fire so high that the shot fell dead and buried itself in the soft sand. We had no ricochet to fear, and though one popped in through the roof of the log house and out again through the floor, we soon got used to that sort of horseplay and minded it no more than cricket. There's one good thing about all this observed the captain. The wood in front is likely clear. The ebb has made a good while. Our stores should be uncovered. Volunteers to go and bring in pork. Gray and Hunter were the first to come forward. Well armed, they stole out of the stockade, but it proved a useless mission. The mutineers were bolder than we fancied, or they put more trust in Israel's gunnery. For four or five of them were busy carrying off the, our stores and wading with them to one of the gigs that lay close by, pulling an oar so to hold her steady against the current. Silver was in the stern sheet in command, and every man of them was now provided with a musket and some secret magazine of their own. The captain sat down to his log, and there is his beginning of the entry. Alexander Smollett, master. David Livesey, ship's doctor. Abraham Gray, carpenter's mate. John Trelawney, owner. John Hunter and Richard Royce, owner's servants, landsmen. Being all that is left faithful of the ship's company, with stores for ten days at short rations, came ashore this day and flew British colours in the log house in Treasure Island. Tom Redruth, owner's servant, landsman, shot by the mutineers. James Hawkin, cabin boy. And at the same time, I was wondering over poor Jim Hawkins' fate. A hail on the landside. Somebody's hailing us, said Hunter, who was on guard. Doctor, Squire, Captain, hello, Hunter, is that you? came the cries. And I ran to the door in time to see Jim Hawkins, safe and sound, come climbing over the stockade. 
Chapter 19. Narrative resumed by Jim Hawkins. The garrison in the stockade. As soon as Ben Gunn saw the colors, he came to a halt, stopped me by the arm, and sat down. Now, he said, there's your friend, sure enough. Far more likely it's the mutineers, I answered. That, he cried. <laughs> Why, in a place like this where nobody puts in but gentlemen of fortune, Silver would fly the Jolly Roger, you make no doubt about that. No, that's your friend's. There's been blows, too, and I reckon your friends has had the best of it. And here they are shore in the old stockade. That was made years, years ago by Flint. Now, he was a man to have a headpiece, was Flint. Barring rum, his match was never seen. You were none of, you were afraid of none, nor he. Only Silver. Silver was genteel. Well, said I, that may be so, and so be it. All the more reason that I should hurry on and join my friends. Nay, mate, said Ben. Not you. You're a good boy, who I mistook. But you're only a boy, all told. Now, Ben Gunn is fly. Rum wouldn't bring me there where you're going, not rum wouldn't, till I see your born gentleman and guess it on his word of honour, and you won't forget my words. A precious sight, that's what you'll say, a precious sight more confidence, and then nips him. And he pinched me the third time in the same air of cleverness. And when Ben Gunn is wanted, and you know where to find him, Jim, just where you found him today. And him that comes is to have a white thing in his hand, and he's to come alone. Oh, and you'll say this. Ben Gunn, says you, has reasons of his own. Well, said I, I, I believe I understand. You have something to propose, and you wish to see the squire or, or the doctor, and you're to be found where I found you. Is that all? And when, says you, he added, why, from about noon observation to about six bells. Good, said I. Now may I go? You won't forget, he inquired anxiously. Precious sight and reasons of his own, says you. Reasons of his own, that's the mainstay. As between ma man and man. Well then, still holding me. I reckon you can go, Jim. A and Jim, if you was to see Silver, you wouldn't go for to sell Benjamin Gunn. Wild horses wouldn't draw it from you. No, says you. And if pirates come ashore, Jim, what would you say there'd be widows in the morning? Here he was interrupted by a loud report, and a cannonball came tearing to the trees and pitched in the sand not a hundred yards from where we two were talking. The next moment, each of us had taken to his heels in a different direction. For a good hour to come, frequent reports shook the island, and the balls kept crashing through the woods. I moved from hiding place to hiding place, always pursued, or so it seemed to me, by these terrifying missiles. But towards the end of the bombardment, though I still durst not venture in the direction of the stockade, where the balls fell oftenest, it be had begun, in a manner, to pluck up my own heart again, and after a long detour to the east, crept down among the shoreside trees. The sun had just set, and the sea breeze was rustling and tumbling in the woods and ruffling the grey surface of the anchorage. The tide, too, the tide, too, was far out, and great tracts of sand lay uncovered. The air, after the heat of the day, chilled me through my jacket. The Hispaniola still lay where she had anchored, but sure enough there was the Jolly Roger, the black flag of piracy, flying from her peak. Even as I looked, there came another red flash and another, and another report that sent the echoes clattering, and one more round shot whistled through the air. It was the last of the cannonade. I lay for some time, watching the bustle which succeeded the, the attack. Men were demolishing something with axes on the beach near the stockade. The poor, jolly boat, I afterwards discovered. Away near the mouth of the river, a great fire was glowing among the trees, and between that point and the ship, one of the gigs kept coming and going. The men, whom I had seen so gloomy, shouting the oars like children, but there was a sound in their voices which suggested rum. At length, I thought I might return towards the stockade. 
I was pretty far down on the low, sandy spit that encloses the anchorage to the east and is joined at half-water to Skeleton Island. And as I rose to my feet, I saw, some distance further down the spit and rising from among the low bushes, an isolated rock, pretty high and peculiarly white in color. It occurred to me that this might be the white rock of which Ben Gunn had spoken, and that some day or another boat might be wanted, and I should know where to look for one. Then I skirted among the woods until I regained the rear or shorewood side of the stockade, and was soon welcomed by the faithful party. I had soon told my story and begun to look about me. The log house was made of the unsquared trunks of pine, roofs, walls, and floor. The latter stood in several places as much as a foot or a foot and a half above the surface of the sand. There was a porch of the door, and under this porch the little spring welled up into an artificial basin of rather odd kind, no other than a great ship's kettle of iron, with the bottom knocked out and sunk to her bearings, quote, as the captain said, among the sand. Little had been left beside the framework of the house, but in one corner there was a stone slab laid down by the way of a hearth and an old rusty iron basket to contain the fire. The slopes of the knoll and all inside the stockade had been cleared of timber to build the house, and we could see by the stamps what a fine and lofty grove had been destroyed. Most of the soil had been washed away or buried and drift after the removal of the trees, only where the steamlet ran down from the kettle, a thick bed of moss and some ferns and little creeping bushes were still green among the, among the sand, very close around the stockade, too close for defense, they said. The wood still flourished high and dense, all of fur on the land side, but towards the sea with a large uh, admixture of live oaks. The cold evening breeze, of which I have spoken, whistled through every chink of the rude building and sprinkled the floor with a continual rain of fine sand. There was sand in our eyes, sand in our teeth, and sand in our suppers, sand dancing in the spring of the bottom of the kettle, and for all the world like porridge beginning to boil. Our chimney was a square hole in the roof. It was but a little part of smoke that found its way out, and the rest eddied about the house, keeping us coughing and piping the eye. Add to this that Gray, the new man, had his face tied up in a bandage for a cut he had got breaking away from the mutineers, and that poor old Tom Redruth, still unburied, lay along the wall, stiff and stark under the Union Jack. If we had been allowed to sit idle, we should have all fallen in the blues, but Captain Smollett was never the man for that. All hands were called up before him, and he divided us into watches, the doctor and Gray and I for one, the squire, Hunter, and Joyce upon the other. Tired as we all were, two were sent out for the firewood, Two more were sent to dig a grave for Redruth. The doctor was named Cook, and I was put sentry at the door. And the captain himself went from one to another, keeping up our spirits and lending a hand wherever it was wanted. From time to time, the doctor came to the door for a little air and to rest his eyes, which were almost smoked out of his head. And whenever he did so, he had a word for me. That man Smollett, he said once, is a better man than I am. And when I say that, it means a deal, Jim. Another time he came and was silent for a while. Then he put his head on one side and looked at me. "'Is this Ben Gunn a man?' he asked. "'I do not know, sir,' said I. "'I'm not very sure whether he's sane. "'If there's any doubt about the matter, he is,' returned the doctor. "'A man who has been here three years biting his nails on a desert island, Jim, "'can't expect to appear as sane as you or me. "'It doesn't lie in human nature.' "'Was it cheese you said he had a fancy for?' "'Yes, sir, cheese,' I answered. "'Well then, Jim,' he said. Just see the good that comes out of being dainty in your food. You've seen my snuff box, haven't you? And you never saw me take a snuff? The reason being is that my snuff box, I carry a piece of Parmesan cheese. A cheese made in Italy, very nutritious. <laughs> well, that's for Ben Gunn. 
Before supper was eaten, we buried old Tom in the sand, and stood round him for a while, bareheaded in the breeze. A good deal of firewood had gone in, but not enough for the captain's fancy, and he shook his head over it and told us we must get back to this tomorrow rather livelier. Then, when we had eaten our pork, and each of us had a good stiff glass of brandy grog, the three chiefs got together in a corner to, to discuss our prospects. It appears they were at their wits' end to what to do, the stores being so low that we must have been starved into surrender long before help came, but our best hope, it was decided, was to kill off the buccaneers until they either hauled down their flag or ran away with the Hispaniola. From nineteen, they were already reduced to fifteen. Two others were wounded, and one at least, the man shot beside the gun, severely wounded, if he were not dead. Every time we had a crack at them, we were to take it, saving our own lives with the extremest care. And besides that, we had two able allies, rum and the climate. As for the first, though, we were about a half a mile away. We could hear them roaring and singing late into the night. And as for the second, the doctor staked his wig with that. Camped there, they were in the marsh and provided with remedies, and half of them would be on their backs before a week. So, he added, if we're not all shot down first, they'll be glad to be packing up the schooner. It's always a ship, and they can get to buccaneering again, I suppose. First ship that I ever lost, said Captain Smollett. I was dead tired, as you may fancy. And when I got to sleep, which was not till after a great deal of tossing, I slept like a log of firewood. The rest had been up, long up, and had already breakfasted and increased the pile of firewood by about half as much again, when I was awakened by a bustle and the sound of voices. Flag of truce, I heard someone say, and then immediately after with a cry of surprise, Silver himself! And at that, I jumped up, and rubbing my eyes, ran to the loophole in the wall. Chapter 20 Silver's Embassy Sure enough, there were two men just outside the stockade, one of them waving a white cloth, the other no less a person than Silver himself, standing placidly by. It was still quite early, and the coldest morning that I think I ever was abroad in, a chill that pierced into the marrow. The sky was bright and cloudless overhead, and the tops of the trees shone rosily in the sun. But where Silver stood with his lieutenant, all was still in shadow, and they waded knee-deep in a low white vapor that had crawled during the night out of the morass. The chill and vapor taken together told a poor tale of the island. It was plainly a damp, feverish, unhealthy spot. "'Keep indoors, men,' said the captain. Ten to one, this is a trick.' Then he hailed the buccaneer. "'Who goes?' "'Stand or we fire!' "'Flag of truce!' cried Silver. The captain was in the porch, keeping himself carefully out of the way of a treacherous shot should any be intended. He turned and spoke to us. "'Doctor's watch on the lookout. Dr. Livesey, take the north side, if you please. Jim, the east. Gray, west. The watch below, all hands to load musket. Lively. Men. Be careful.' And then he turned again to the mutineers. "'And what do you want with your flag of truce?' he cried. This time, it was the other man who replied. "'Captain Silver, sir, to come on board and make terms,' he shouted. "'Captain Silver? Don't know him. Who is he?' cried the captain. And we could hear him adding to himself, "'Captain is in my heart, and here's promotion.' Long John answered for himself, "'Me, sir. These poor lads have chosen me captain after your, des after your desertion, sir.' laying a particular emphasis upon the word desertion. We're willing to submit if we can come to terms and no bones about it. All I ask is your word, Captain Smollett, to let me safe and sound out of this here stockade. 
and one minute to get out shot before a gun is fired. My man, said Captain Smollett, I have not the slightest desire to talk to you. If you wish to talk to me, you can come, that's all. If there's any treachery, it'll be on your side, and the Lord help you. That's enough, Captain, shouted Long John cheerily. A word from you's enough. I know a gentleman, and you may lay to that. We could see the man who carried the flag of truce attempting to hold Silver back, nor was that wonderful seeing how cavalier he had, b had been the captain's answer. But Silver laughed at him aloud, slapped him on the back as if the idea of alarm had been absurd. Then he advanced to the stockade, threw over his crutch, got a leg up, and with great vigor and skill succeeded in surmounting the fence and dropping safely to the other side. I will confess that I was far too much taken up with what was going on to be of the slightest use as sentry, and... Indeed, I had already deserted my own eastern loophole and crept up beside the captain, who was now seated himself on the threshold, with his elbows on his knees, his head in his hands, and his eyes fixed on the water, as it bubbled out of the old iron kettle in the sand. He was whistling to himself. Come, lasses and lads. Silver had terrible hard work getting up the knoll. What with the steepness of the incline, the thick tree stumps, and the soft sand, he and his crutch were as helpless as a ship's in stays but he stuck to it like a man in silence, and at last he arrived before the captain, whom he saluted in the handsomest style. He was tricked out in his best, an immense blue coat thick with brass buttons hung as low as to his knees, and a fine laced hat was set on the back of his head. "'Here you are, my man,' said the captain, raising his head. "'You'd better sit down.' <laughs> "'You ain't a-going to let me inside, captain,' complained Long John. "'It's a main cold morning, to be sure, sir.' To sit outside upon the sand. Boy, Silver, said the captain, if you had pleased to be an honest man and you might have been sitting in your galley, it's your own doing. You're either my ship's cook, and then you were treated handsome, or Captain Silver, a common mutineer and pirate, and then you can go hang. Well, well, Captain, returned the sea cook, sitting down as he had was bidden on the sand. You'll have to give me a hand up, that's all. <laughs> A pretty place you have up here. Ah, there's Jim. Top of the morning to you, Jim. Doctor, my service. Why, there you all are, together like a happy family, in a manner of speaking. If you have anything to say, my man, better say it, said the captain. Right, right you are, Captain Smollett. Hmm. Duty is duty, to be sure. Well, <clears throat> now, you look here. That was a good lay of yours last night. I don't deny it was a good lay. <laughs> some of you pretty handy with a handspike hand. And I'll not deny neither, but what some of my people were shook. Maybe all were shook. Maybe I was shook myself. Maybe that's why I'm here for terms. But you mark me, Captain. It won't do twice by thunder. We'll have to do sentry go and ease off a point or so on the rum. Maybe you think we were all in a sheet in the wind's eye, but I'll tell you I was sober. I was only a dog tired, and if I'd woke a second sooner, I'd have caught you in the act, I would. He wasn't dead when I got round to him, not he. Well, said Captain Smollett, as cool as he can be, all that Silver said was a riddle to him, but you would never have guessed it from his tone. As for me, I began to have an inkling. Ben's gun's last word came back to my mind. I began to suppose that he had paid the buccaneers a visit while he, they all lay drunk together round their fire, and I reckoned up he with a glee that... We had only fourteen enemies to deal with. Well, here it is, said Silver. We want that treasure, and we'll have it. That's our point. 
You would just as soon save your lives, I reckon, and that's yours. You have a chart, haven't you? That says maybe, replied the captain. <laughs> well, you have, I know that, returned the Long John. You needn't be so husky with a man. There ain't no particular service in that. You may lay to that. What I mean is, we want your chart. Now, I never meant you no harm myself. That won't do with me, my man, interrupted the captain. We know exactly what you mean to do, and we don't care, for now you see you can't do it. The captain looked at him, looked at him calmly and proceeded to fill a pipe. If Abe Gray, Silver broke out, Avast there, cried Dr. Smart. Gray told me nothing, and I asked him nothing. And what's more, I would see you and him in this whole island blown clean out of the water into blazes first. So there's my mind for you, my man, on that. This little whiff of temper seemed to cool Silver down. He had been growing nettled before, but now he pulled himself together. <sighs> like enough, he said he. I would set no limits to what gentlemen might consider ship-shape or might not, as the case were. And seeing as how you were about to take a pipe, Captain, I'll make so free as to do likewise. And he filled a pipe and lighted it. And the two men sat silently smoking for quite a while, now looking each other in the face, now stopping their tobacco, now leaning forward to spit. It was as good as play to see them. Now, said Silver, resumed Silver, here it is. You give us the chart to get the treasure by, and drop shooting poor seamen, and stoving in their heads in while sleep. You do that, and we'll offer you a choice. Either you come aboard along us once the treasure's shipped, and then I'll give you him my Avi Davy, upon my word of honor to clap you somewhere safe ashore. Well, if that ain't your fancy, some of my hands being rough and having old scores on account of hazing, then you can stay here, you can. We'll divide the souls with you man for man, and I'll give my affidavy as before to speak the first ship by sight and send him here to pick you up. Now you alone that's talking. Handsomer you couldn't look to get you, not you. And I hope, raising his voice, that all hands in this here blockhouse will overhaul my words. For what is I spoke is spoke to all. Captain Smollett rose from his seat and knocked out the ashes of his pipe with the palm of his left hand. Is that all? he asked. Every last word by thunder, answered John. Refuse that, and you've seen the last of me but musket balls. Very good, said the captain. Now you'll hear me. If you'll come up one by one, unarmed, I'll engage to clap you all in irons and take you home into a fair trial in England. If you won't, my name is Alexander Smollett. I've flown my sovereign's colours and I'll see you all to Davy Jones. You can't find the treasure. You can't sail the ship. There's not a man among you fit to sail the ship. You can't fight us. Grey there got away from five of you. Your ship's in irons, Master Silver. You're on a lee shore and so you'll find. I stand here and tell you so and they're the last good words you'll get from me. For in the name of heaven, I'll put a bullet in your back when next time I meet you. Tramp, my lad. Bundle out of this place, please. Hand over hand, double quick. Silver's face was a picture. His eyes started in his head with wrath. He took the fire out of his pipe. Give me a hand up, he cried. Not I, returned the captain. Don't give me a hand up, he roared. Not a man among us moved. 
growling the foulest imprecations. He crawled along the sand till he got hold of the porch and could hoist himself again in his crutch, and then he spat out into the spring. <coughs> Damn, he cried. That's what I think of ye. Four hours that'll stove in your old blockhouse like a rum puncheon. Laugh, by thunder, laugh! Before an hour's out, you'll laugh upon the other side. Them that'll die will be the lucky ones. And with a dreadful oath, he stumbled off, plowed down the sand, was helped across the stockade after four or five failures by the man with the flag of truce, and disappeared in an instant afterwards among the trees. Chapter 21 The Attack As soon as Silver disappeared, the captain, who had been closely watching him, turned towards the interior of the house and found not a man of us at his post but Gray. It was the first time we had ever seen him angry. Quarters, he roared, and then, as we all slunk back to our places, Gray, he said, I'll put your name in the log. You stood by your duty like a seaman. Mr. Trelawney, I'm surprised at you, sir. Doctor, I thought you had worn the king's coat. If that was how you served at Fontenay, sir, you'd have been better on your berth. The doctor's watch were all back in their loopholes. The rest were busy loading the spare muskets, and every one with a red face, you may be certain, and a flea in his ear, as the saying is. The captain looked on for a while in silence, then he spoke. My lads, I've given Silver a broadside. I pitched in a red heart on purpose, and before, and before the hour's out, as he said, we shall be boarded. We're outnumbered. I needn't tell you that, but we fight in shelter. And a minute ago, I should have said we fought with discipline. I've no manner of doubt that we should drub them if you choose. Then he went the rounds and saw, as he said, that all was clear. On the two short sides of the house, east and west, there were only two loopholes. On the south side, where the porch was, two again, and the north side, five. There was a round score of muskets for the seven of us. The firewood had been built into four piles, tables, you might say, one with the middle on each side, and with each of those tables, some ammunition and four loaded muskets were laid ready to the hand of the defenders. In the middle, the cutlasses lay ranged. Toss out the fire, said the captain. The chill is past, and we mustn't have smoke in our eyes. The iron fire basket was carried bodily out by Mr. Trelawney, and the embers smothered among the sand. Hawkins hasn't had his breakfast. Hawkins, help yourself, and back to your post to eat it, continued the captain Smollett. Lively now, my lad. You'll want it before you're done. Hunter, serve out a round of brandy to all hands. And while this was going on, the captain completed, in his own mind, the plan of the defense. Doctor, you will take the door, he resumed. See and don't expose yourself. Keep within and fire through the porch. Hunter, take the east side there. Joyce, you stand by my the west. Good man. Mr. Trelawney, you are the best shot. You and Mr. Gray will take this north alongside with the, with the five loopholes. It's there the danger is. If they can get up there fire upon us through our own ports, things would look a bit dirty. Hawkins, neither you nor I are much in the count of shooting. We'll stand by to load and bear a hand. As the captain had said, the chill was past. As soon as the sun had climbed above our girdle of trees, it fell with all its force upon the clearing, and drank up the vapors as, it, as a drought. Soon the sand was baking, and the resin melting in the logs of the blockhouse. Jackets and coats were flung aside, shirts thrown open at the neck and rolled up at the shoulders, and we stood there each at his post in a fever of heat and anxiety. An hour passed away. Hang them, said the captain. This is a dull as the doldrums. Gray, whistle for a wind. Just at that moment came the first news of attack. 
If you please, sir, said Joyce. If I see anyone, am I to fire? I told you so, cried the captain. Thank you, sir, returned Joyce, with the same quiet civility. Nothing followed for a time, but the remark had set us all on alert, straining ears and eyes. The musketeers, with their pieces balanced in their hands, the captain out of the middle of the blockhouse, with his mouth very tight and a frown on his face. So some seconds passed, till suddenly Joyce whipped out his mus musket and fired. The report had scarcely died away ere it was repeated and repeated from without in a scattering volley, shot behind shot like a string of geese from every side of the enclosure. Several bullets struck the log house, but not one entered, and as the smoke cleared away and vanished, the stockade in the woods around it looked as quiet and empty as before. Not a bow waved, not a gleam of a musket barrel betrayed the presence of our foes. "'Did you hit your man?' asked the captain. "'No, sir,' replied Joyce. "'I believe not, sir.' Next best thing to tell the truth, muttered Captain Smollett. Load his gun, Hawkins. How many should you say they were on your side, Doctor? I know precisely, said Dr. Livesey. Three shots were fired on this side. I saw three flashes. Two close together, one farther to the west. Three, repeated the Captain. And how many on yours, Mr. Trelawney? This was not so easily answered. There had come many from the north, seven by the squire's com computations, eight or nine, according to Gray. From the west and east, only a single shot had been fired. It was plain, therefore, that the attack would be developed from the north, and that on the other side, three sides, there was only to be annoyed by the show of hostilities. But Captain Smollett made no change in his arrangements. If the mutineers succeeded in crossing the stockade, he argued, they would take possession of any unprotected loophole and shoot us down like rats in our own stronghold. Nor had we had much time left for us for thought. Suddenly, with a loud huzzah, a cloud of little cloud of pirates leaped from the woods on the north side and ran straight on the stockade. At the same moment, the fire was once more opened from the woods, and a rifle ball sang through the doorway and knocked the Dr. Muskets to, into bits. The boarders swarmed over the fence like mon monkeys. Squire and Gray fired again, and yet again three men fell, one forward into the enclosure, two back on the outside. But of these, one was evidently more frightened than hurt, for he was on his feet again in a crack and instantly disappeared among the trees. Two had bit the dust, and one had fled. Four had made good their footing inside our defenses, while from the shelter of the woods, seven or eight, each evidently supplied with several muskets, kept up a hot, though useless, fire on the log house. The four who had been boarded made straight before them, for the building shouting as they ran, and the men among the trees shouted back to encourage them. Several shots were fired, but as was the hurry of the marksmen, that not one appeared to have taken effect. In a moment, the four pirates had swarmed up the mound and were upon us. The head of Joe Banderson, the boatswain, appeared at the middle of the loophole, at him, all hands, all hands, he roared in a voice of thunder. At the same moment, another pirate grasped Hunter's musket by the muzzle, wrenched it from his hands, plucked it through the loophole, and in one stunning blow laid the poor fellow senseless on the floor. Meanwhile, a third, running unharmed all round the house, appeared suddenly in the doorway and fell with his cutlass on the doctor. Our position was utterly reversed. A moment since we were firing under cover at an exposed enemy, now it was we who lay uncovered and could not return a blow. The log house was full of smoke to which we owed our comparative safety. Cries and confusion, the flashes and reports of pistol shots, and one loud groan rang in my ears. Out, lads, and fight them in the open! Cutlasses! cried the captain. I snatched the cutlass from the pile, and someone at the same time snatching another gave me a cut across the knuckles which I hardly felt. I dashed out of the door into the clear sunlight. Someone was close behind. I knew not who. Right in front, the doctor was pursuing his assailant down the hill and sent him sprawling on his back with a great slash across his face. "'Round the house, lads! Round the house!' cried the captain, and even in a hurly-burly I perceived a change in his voice. Mechanically I obeyed, turned eastward, and with my cutlass raised, ran around the corner of the house. Next moment I was face to face with Anderson. He roared aloud and his hanger went up above his head, his flashing in the sunlight. 
and not time to be afraid, but as that blow, still hung and pending, leaped in a thrice upon one side, and missing my foot in the soft sand, rolled headlong down the slope. When I had first sallied from the door, the other mutineers had been already swarming up the palisade to make an end of us. One man in a red nightcap with his cutlass in his mouth had even got up upon the top to throw a leg across. Well, so short had been the interval that when I found my feet again, all was in the same posture. The fellow with the red nightcap still halfway over, another still just showing his head above the top of the stockade. And yet, in this breath of time, the fight was over, and the victory was ours. Gray, following close behind me, had cut down the big boatswain ere he had time to recover from his lost blow. Another had been shot at a loophole in the very act of firing into the house, and now lay in agony, the pistol still smoking in his hand. A third, as I had seen, the doctor disposed of at a blow. Of the four who had scaled the palisade, only one remained unaccounted for, and he, having left his cutlass on the field, was now clambering out again with the fear of death upon him. "'Fire! Fire from the house!' cried the doctor, "'and you lads back into cover!' But his words were unheeded. No shot was fired, and the last boarder made good his escape and disappeared with the rest into the wood. In three seconds, nothing remained of the attacking party but the five who had fallen, four on the inside, one on the outside of the palisade. The doctor and Gray and I ran full speed for shelter. The survivors would soon be back where they had left their muskets, and at any moment the fire might recommence. The house was by this time somewhat cleared of smoke, and we saw at a glance the price for which we had paid for victory. Hunter lay beside his loophole, stunned, joiced by his shot through the head, never to move again. While right in the center the squire was supporting the captain, one as pale as the other. "'The captain's wounded,' said Mr. Trelawney. "'Have they run?' asked Mr. Smollett. "'All that could have. You may be bound,' returned the doctor. "'But there's five of them will never run again.' Five, cried the captain. "'Come, that's better. Five against three leaves us four to nine. That's better odds than we were starting. We were seven to nineteen then, or thought we were, <clears throat> and that's as bad to bear. The mutineers were seen only eight in number, for the man shot by Mr. Trelawney on the board of the schooner died that same evening of his wound. But this was, of course, not known till after the faithful party. And that is where we'll end tonight's story time. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for joining us for Storytime Monday. We will continue with part five next week, My Sea Adventure. I've actually never read through this entire story and it's like originality and just like as a whole. And it's really very interesting. It was very, very good. Thank you for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful night. Take care of yourself. Be kind to yourself. And I hope to see you on our Friday podcast where Mackenzie and I will be talking about old Christmas songs and holiday songs and where they came from. And we hope to see you there. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a good night.